0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a special guest. He's the president and CIO of Merck Investments, author of the book Sustainable Wealth, and an all-around good guy. Today, welcome, Axel Merck. Great to be with you. Axel, it's great to catch up again. We've interacted over the years in all sorts of different conferences and stuff, and, and you've got a pretty interesting background. I know starting Merck Investments and, and having grown it into a, a pretty successful advisory, but lots of other things, you know, marathon runner, pilot, now based out of San Francisco, got a handful of kids running around. Why don't you give us a quick kind of walkthrough of your background before we dive cannonball deep into uh, the world of
1: investing? Sure, and I just signed up for another marathon this summer, so I can still brag about being a marathon runner. No, signing up is the, the easy part. <laughs>
0: which which one are you going to do this summer?
1: Actually, I'm going to do the Santa Rosa one, which is a flat one, and the key thing about it is the flat ones, people are very competitive about it. I do it because my son wants to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I'm just tagging along. Usually, I do the more fun ones, like the Big Sur one, which has 22 hills in it, if you if you count the molehills as well um, and there it's not about the speed that said the reason I do run and do exercise is so I can handle my business trips and do this job because you've got to keep your sanity you keep your mind off things and the same of course uh, with uh, sometimes doing a few other fun things and that maybe if you want to hear a little bit of my background uh, I live in, in Palo Alto I work in San Francisco and I did a startup before it was fashionable to do startups, meaning I was a dropout out of a PhD program, and I'd always kind of combined the economics on finance side with the quantitative computer science side, and at some point I had a fight with my professor that says, "We, how can you model?" changing objective functions, meaning when, when the, the, the problem you're trying to solve is changing all the time and he had no sympathy for that and saying, well, you just changed the formula. And uh, eventually I decided that if you're not a genius, I better move on. And I had started managing some friends' money in college, structured that as a business, while as a PhD student, as indicated, never finished the PhD. Eventually, I, I went into the mutual fund business, and part of the reason we did that, I actually, most people know me as a currency guy. We actually do kind of everything. Um, global macro these days, we're known for, but the reason we veered into these other areas is because in the second part of the 90s, quote-unquote, everything went higher. Something That is a completely new theme to anybody who's listening today I suppose and we wanted diversification and around 2000 we didn't find anything anymore so we went to more cash management global cash management precious metals management and through that our emphasis on currencies has evolved because that's the one area where one can generate uncorrelated returns and then we've gotten more sophisticated into long short currencies we do deep dives into central banks and through that of course we generate a lot of ideas and that's why we comment about everything and anything in global markets ultimately what i see my role as, i try to get people thinking i try to get people thinking is your portfolio robust enough for whatever might be coming your way and uh, we do that uh, through some uh, our products on the kind of the on the retail advisory end but any family office institutions if they want to have the portfolio looked at we'll be glad to look at that and do that more specifically and ultimately it is about Is the traditional way of looking at your portfolio valid? And in some form or fashion, that theme has applied many times throughout my career. And so I've always been a little bit of a renegade taking contrarian views, not because I tend to disagree, but because I've never worked for one of the big shops. I'm literally a dropout. I've had some summer jobs with some of the other shops. But um, everything we publish is really homebred. And uh, it may not always be right, but we tend to be opinionated and provide some food for thought.
0: Ooh. Good. You and me both. So why don't, why don't we just jump right in? You know, I saw that you were active on Twitter today talking about uh, a handful of things. There was a little meeting and then some announcements out of our friends of the fed maybe maybe why don't we start there and then we'll start to jump into some different areas of the macro world but kind of what's the world look like you today i mean i I know a lot's changed since writing your book back in 2010 but what what's uh what were your kind of general thoughts and maybe share what you were talking about on uh on twitter today
1: Yes, so let me start with Twitter maybe. For those who, who embrace it, I don't need to tell them anything, but anybody who's not on Twitter, get on there. Today, news isn't breaking on CNBC anymore. News is breaking on Twitter, and journalists Love following folks like me because we provide an instantaneous interpretation of the news, provide some flavor to it. Um, getting a newsletter published, and we do write a newsletter, has to go through layers and compliance and whatnot, and we are able to tweet quite instantaneously. So, and for example, when there's a, today, the, the, as we speak here, there was a FOMC meeting. Rather than charting down notes and sharing that with my team, I, I send it out on Twitter. And that, for me, achieves much of the same thing, but at the same time, I can help the entire public do it. Now, as far as substance is concerned, uh, by the time that um, your listeners are listening to it, the dust will have settled. But I, I tend to get pretty wrapped up when I hear certain things. Obviously, the Fed has announced the quote-unquote normalization of the balance sheet and and and, and um, the, the sort of pace they want to get there. But they've left out a whole bunch of things. And and one of the things I've said is it's like driving into a tunnel with the lights off. And part of the reason I say that is uh, a few weeks ago I was at a conference at at Stanford at the Hoover Institute. There was this big debate going on about what does a normalized balance sheet look like. And obviously you've got to be a bit of a monetary policy buff to get enjoyment out of it. But the Fed doesn't know where it wants to go. So how can you say I'm going to sell this amount of securities every month and say, this is going to be not my primary policy tool. I'm going to use interest rates. But they don't know what the end point is. And the, the part of the reason I, I have such difficulty with what the Fed wants to do is, odds are that the economy is going to turn down before they can, quote-unquote, normalize the balance sheet, especially if they haven't defined what that really means. And so at some point, they have to reverse course. Well, what does it mean? They're going to lower rates again, or they're going to stop selling securities, and then they're going to be at zero, again at interest rates, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to continue selling securities and then buy it again? Now, all that said, the positive spin on it it is, this is better than what we had before. At least they're starting to get rid of some of the stuff and everything else is a problem they worry about later. Um, What I see, to take a step back here is, I see a Fed tightening into a flattening yield curve, meaning that as the economy is slowing down or inflation is coming down, um, interest rates are moving higher, and they do what they do every time. They, they tighten probably too much. They're going to have a weakened the economy. They'll have to reverse course. In the meantime, we've got Europe. where We're printing a whole bunch a month. And by the way, we were told at this press conference that if you add it all up, they might be selling up to $50 billion a month. Well, the Europeans are currently buying 60 billion euros, that is, a month. And we're told by the Fed it's paint drying on the wall and drug in Europe tells us that this is extremely easy policy. So pardon me if I'm confused. Pardon me if um, if at some point the market is going to not know how to interpret this. And all of this, of course, in the backdrop, Deanna Yellen almost certainly losing her job early next year. So we have told a bunch of things. We're being told to just be patient and they're going to do everything right. Whereas my take is that, the Fed is really hostage of the markets. Earlier this year, the market delivered this rate hike on a silver platter. Now they similarly did, and now the Fed thinks they are the boss. Well, I don't think they're the boss, and I think the market is going to tell them sooner or later.
0: You know, you wrote a, another recent piece on your blog, and, and listeners, Axel's got a lot of great series of posts on his on his site called Insight Series. And then there was one that um, just came out where you were talking about the historically low level of market volatility. Maybe you could talk about that for a second, because that is kind of segue, is that, um, in your opinion, something that's kind of Fed-induced, or what, what's the reasoning for that and kind of implications in general?
1: In my career, and I've been doing this for a couple of decades, the best bubble indicator there is is low volatility, or as I call it, it's cousin complacency. When volatility is low, investors... Perceive risk to be low That means they pile in onto things that they shouldn't and not just investors businesses might do the same thing And we have that with tech stocks in the 90s. We had that in the housing boom, and I think we have it right now And uh, there are all kinds of theories out there including new theories as to where that might be coming from that low volatility Some of that might be structural because information flow is more efficient in a in an electronic age But the the main driver in my view are central banks. When central banks keep interest rates low, so-called risk premium are being compressed. And uh, that that sounds fancy, but it means that junk bonds don't yield much in relation to treasuries. But it also means that volatility is lower, and it also means that volatility in stocks is lower. And when that happens, just if you take any valuation model, it means valuations should be higher. And so volatility is being compressed by central banks, and the summer when uh, the Fed started, it had its big taper tantrum. It was uh, like, uh, like the, the the pressure cooker getting its um, its lid raised. And uh, right now, it seems to some people that there isn't so much pressure. But I would dispute that. I think there's plenty of pressure around. And uh, one example where you don't see the pressure, maybe China, for example. And we can talk about China later, where the the government is trying to make. It P, everything is fine. And so similarly, um, we have elevated valuations in just about any asset class in the U.S. and in many markets around the world. And the key driver here is, is central banks keeping it lower. And as the Fed is now trying to normalize its balance sheet, I have no doubt that risk premium has to rise. That, means you have a, that also means, though, that asset prices have to come down. Everything else equal. Now, if you tell me that earnings are going to shoot through the roof or there may be some other reasons why asset prices should be so much higher, that may be the case, um, that, that that can still happen. But if I'm not mistaken, we have instead, we, we have this this notion and it's becoming kind of the self-fulfilling um, dynamics where people are just piling into risk assets, piling into securities. They go higher and higher and higher because what can possibly go wrong, asset prices never go down again. You buy the dips. And a lot of that has been induced by central banks. The unwinding of that is going to be, at the very least, let's put it in quotes, interesting. So,
0: you know, l- let's maybe kind of segue a little bit into, you talked a little bit about equities and how you mentioned that equities in the U.S. are, are a little expensive. And, and we talk a lot. I mean, we actually posted a chart on Twitter today on, on price to cash flow of U.S. stocks. And it's a, it's a Luthold chart. So going back to the, I believe the seventies, but, you know, historically pretty high, but like most valuation charts. So what what do you see really as the opportunity set in equities? Is it the entire globe is expensive? Do you see pockets that are more interesting? What's kind of the framework and, and, and lens that you look at equities in general?
1: So let me first say anybody who is negative on the markets has been wrong, right? And, uh, and so similarly, if you want to take a negative view on, on risk assets, which is kind of a general term for equities, high yield bonds and, and other things that are correlated to, to to equities, you're going to have a quote unquote negative carry. meaning it's gonna cost you to to take a negative position. Now my view is negative. So how do I express that? I've decided that it is just too expensive to continue to be negative and you're just gonna lose, 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 lose. And yes, one of these days you might be right. But instead I think the more productive approach is to say, well, if equities are expensive and if that that I'd call it the bubble is widely spread then you want to be in something that isn't correlated to that and there are different ways of doing it we can talk about some in, in, in the short term but sticking in, within the equity space you probably want to do it in the long short space and let me put ahead, this isn't specific investment advice and anything we do short, you can of course lose your shirt quite quickly and you can be wrong on both legs of it, but the short of it is that I happen to think that the U.S. markets, in particular the high-tech market, is very, very overvalued and at the same time, there are some pockets elsewhere in the world that I happen to think are valuable. And so what you can do is you can take a long short position. You can, you can buy some markets in the rest of the world and, and take out as much of your equity risk as, as, as you can. Now, for me personally, I try to have a slight negative bias. And, uh, and so net, I'm slightly negative, but I don't want to be parricating through the nose. And so to, to make this a little bit less abstract, everybody says that Europe is a big mess. Um, A lot of people have said France is a big mess. Well, I happen to think, and I said this before Macron was elected and uh, is, is winning with what appears to be a landslide victory, as we take this, the second round of the French elections hasn't happened yet. But my view was that the French are ready for reform. And by the way, I thought even if Le Pen were to win Um, He probably couldn't do as much harm as some people see it, but I happen to think that the French market is one of those markets That's going to outperform other markets because the French need to do reform and that doesn't suggest they'll do things perfectly Um, Nobody, no politician in the world can ever implement exactly what they want to do, just look here at home It's much more difficult in practice than in theory, Um, but the French are ready for reform and uh, as reform takes place valuations should improve on a relative basis. And so taking a position, I'm just giving that as an example on specific investment advice, you can buy France and sell the S&P, and that might be profitable if that is right. Now, as indicated, you could be wrong on both ends, and you also have to decide whether you want to take the currency risk or not. But that's the sort of thing that I like to do. I I like specific areas uh, around the world, but in general, I don't want to have returns that are correlated with equities because I am spooked where the equity market might be heading.
0: Yeah, and one of the challenges that you've touched on is that you know, a lot of people ask us because we've been talking about this for a long time, where we say foreign markets are a lot cheaper than the U.S. and, and certain ones are certainly m- much cheaper, um, and some are you know on the expensive side. There's a whole spectrum, and so you know, people always say, you know, why wouldn't you just do a long short or a market neutral? And Axel touched on it, I think, pretty accurately, is the sense that the world, particularly with valuation, plays out over such a long time frame. And, you know, in any given year, certainly we've seen in the late 90s, you know, the uh, U.S. stocks hit a long-term valuation ratio of 45. So even though they're expensive at 30 now, they still could go much higher um, and it's always the challenge. Now, we certainly agree with you in that in, uh, a couple of years ago, until like right around 2015 and, and, even more so the summer of probably 2016, we saw, uh, the world kind of shift to, for foreign equities performing much better than the U.S. has. And, and that's continued. Even though the U.S. is still going up, a, a lot of the foreign shares are doing better. Um, you mentioned China briefly. Why, why don't we, um, talk a little bit about that? There's a lot, a few of our, prior guests have uh, talked quite a bit about China, and people seem to have a lot of interest and a lot of disagreement. What's, what's kind of your thesis on China, and what, what how do you see uh, that
1: part of the world? Sure, let me just round up the, the previous thought you had to, to complete that. I, I agree with what you say, I'd just like to add that in addition, no matter what analysis you do, be aware that correlations are not stable. And so you have this wonderful model that as your U.S. market moves X percent, the French market is going to move this, or whatever it is that you might be comparing, or in the currency space, or this or that, or take the best carry trade in the world. Well, these sort of correlations are morphing, and uh, it is something to be keenly aware, especially if one does something more sophisticated than, than just being plain by and hold and any, any, anything. And it comes hugely into effect when you, when you, A, when you, when you do any sort of back testing of any strategy, even a simple equity strategy, or, or in terms of risk management as well. And, and so, bridging that to China, a China superficially looks fine, and everybody tells you everything is good, and indeed until, I have to look it up, I think about two years ago, we were actually positive on China, um, when others had already turned negative. We used to have a, a mutual fund that was de facto a play on a rising renminbi, when others were already saying, oh my god, you got a." you got to short it. And, and our timing was actually not, not so bad. We then shut it down because I didn't believe in the product anymore. And then we wanted to short the renminbi. And I didn't feel comfortable shorting renminbi myself while, while having it long in a mutual fund. But the reason why we used to be positive and I used to be positive on, the, on China was because I thought you can fix China. And the biggest problem I see in China is that for small and medium-sized enterprises, there is no market-based efficient access to credit um a the the state-owned enterprises have abundant access to credit but if you're small or medium-sized enterprise you have to go to a loan shock and if the banks learn to provide credit more efficiently to a small and medium-sized enterprise i believe you could have an entrepreneurial boom you just would need to have some propaganda of the government that they should invest in themselves and you can do a lot of things one of the reasons the chinese are chasing any one investment at any one time, be that real estate, be that Bitcoin, be that gold, be that something else, is because they don't have many investment choices. And then, of course, then they try to take the money out of the country. And, and if you allowed the market to mature, that would be good. And until the until the IMF said the Chinese should be allowed into the SDR, into the special drawing rights, they, they suddenly started to promise reform after reform after reform. But ever since they got the, the kind of the nod of approval, they've backpedaled on a lot of these reforms. In the meantime, of course, they have done all the things that I'm sure others of other guests of yours have pointed out, they have had this breathtaking credit growth, doing it the old fashioned way. And part of the reason they do that is because the, the Congress in China has probably more billionaires than the Trump administration. The vested interests in China are just so strong that it's so difficult to institute reforms and in the meantime, it's bursting at its seams. Uh, and, and so you can only do that for a certain amount of time. At some point, something has to give. Uh, we happen to think that one of the key values is then going to be the currency. And so these days, we're negative on the currency. But it's it's one of these things. There's a negative carry. As I look at on my my Bloomberg, the, the negative carry on the 12-month offshore forward is, a, is about 3%. Um, so that's currently comparatively cheap. But it's going to cost you, and the question is how long do you have to wait until that sort of thing is going to come to fruition, and is the currency going to weaken? And by the way, the European Central Bank just announced that uh, of the, uh, since the beginning of the year, um, they sold about uh, 500 million euros worth of dollars to buy renminbi to diversify their own foreign currency reserves. And, so, uh, and that's, of course, not a huge amount in the scheme of the foreign exchange markets, uh, but a bubble never bursts when you think it will. I happen to think that if you want to be looking at the one risk event that's out there that's uh, that's going to get people's attention, China is certainly at the very top of the list. Um, but at the same time, nobody knows when exactly that that risk event is going to going to smack you in the face.
0: China's been an interesting example over the past couple decades of, you know, pretty, um, interesting kind of boom and, and bust sort of, uh, behavior. And particularly even in the U.S., you know, I know you and I both attend or, and participate in a lot of institutional conferences and even our institutional friends aren't, um, immune from kind of this excitement and, and cycles of interest. I remember back in the mid 2000s, You know, everyone interested in the bricks and everything and in China's market just, you know, such huge swings and, um, has at least on the equity side, been um, you know, pretty interesting over the past few years. It'll be fun to watch uh over the next decade to see how it develops. You know, you you mentioned a couple times the topic of currencies. And I know this is an area of particular interest for both you and I and an area of extreme confusion, I think, for most investors. And so um podcast listeners, Axel site has a lot of great educational info on currencies, but why don't you talk a little bit about currencies and your framework for thinking about them and even just kind of start from the beginning and then we can kind of get into currency investing strategies and what works, what might not work. But, but talk, why don't you just uh, start there and give us a little insight into, into how Merck and, and everyone uh, at your crew thinks about the currencies.
1: Well, the first thing, and uh, what I'm going to tell you applies to every market, not just to currencies. The first thing is that it would be good for people to be humble, because in the end, we all cook, we sold, and all the smart kits were wrong in 2008. Sure, we were one of the few warning about it, but that doesn't mean we got all the details right. And uh, a lot of people just don't trust the smart kits anymore, because they have been wrong. And by the way, passive management and doing nothing, throwing dots is more profitable anyway. Now, that said you can approach the currency space like any other space. You can do fundamental analysis, you can do technical analysis, just like in the equity space, just because they're good earnings doesn't mean the company goes up. Now, a lot of people don't look at currencies every day and don't study them in depth, and so the difference to other markets is that people tend to believe what they see written by a journalist. Now, if you take journalism, what the journalists do and I talk a lot to journalists and I greatly respect them, but they got to write a story based on the day's move. If you have a central bank meeting, say the ECB is meeting, and the euro, let's have it go up. Well, they're going to find a quote that justifies why the euro went up that day. Is that really the reason? Uh, and 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 so, what we try to do is we actually come from it from from completely different directions. We come from it from both the qualitative side and the quantitative side, and uh, on the. And I mentioned to you in the introduction that I kind of have this, this computer science background. So I used to be all going how about quantitative analysis, and then I discovered many of the weaknesses become very qualitative, and these days I'm trying to embrace kind of both sides. So on the, on the qualitative side, we do deep dives into central banks. So we try to... One of the views we have is that um, in most of the developed world, we've made promises that we can't keep. So we have to somehow pedal back on the promises we've made on, on entitlements. And depending on the culture on different countries, that's going to take different dynamics. So in the U.S., we've got a great printing press. We don't need to worry about it, at least for a while. Um, the Germans love austerity. And so that creates... Other sort of dynamics in different countries, and and obviously when you have a Draghi as head of the European Central Bank, it's going to be different than if you were to have a German as the head of the central bank. As Merkel is saying, the next central bank president of Europe has to be a German, right? And, and so then it's going to create a different flavor. Habenomics creates a different flavor. There are lots of myths out there in the, in the currency space. So one of them is that you need to have economic growth to have a strong currency. And it's because it's written in the paper. It has to be right. Well, look at the yen. The worse growth is in, the, in Japan, the better the currency appears to be. And part of that is that, and the, the best example I tried to bring up is a couple of years ago, we had this massive earthquake in Japan, and the currency soared. Uh, but a few weeks later, you had a, an earthquake in New Zealand, and the currency tanked. Well, the difference is Japan has a current account surplus and New Zealand has a significant current account deficit. And while I don't think the current account balance is a direct predictor of exchange rate, it it helps explain a little bit about the dynamics. So in Japan, when you have a shock to the economy, people are saving more. Well, everything else equal, people saving more is a positive for the currency, whereas in New Zealand with a significant deficit, well, in the immediate aftermath, Um, less economic activity is going to take place, fewer people are going to invest in New Zealand, currency is going to plunge, and then the economy might overheat in the rebuilding effort. And so there are slightly different dynamics happening in different countries. The one biggest frustration for a lot of investors has been the euro, where people say Europe is a mess, how on earth is it possible that the euro hasn't broken through parity, but the Europeans are similar to the Japanese, becoming more Japanese. In fact, the euro, I would claim, has become a funding currency for carry trades, meaning that people borrow money in euros. Warren Buffett issues debt in euros these days. Interest rates are incredibly negative. And so it makes sense to borrow money in euros, to buy other assets. And you do that when you feel good, when risk is on. Um, But it also means when risk is off, when markets come crashing down, You've got to reduce your leverage, you've got to pay back your debt, and that provides upward momentum on the euro. So we look at fundamental factors like that, and I can go on this for hours, but let me just switch here to the the more technical side. One thing that's unique about the currency space is that you have a lot of profit participants, a lot of market participants that are not profit maximizers, meaning you have corporate hedgers that you have in the commodity space as well. But you have central banks as well, very active. You have tourists that use their credit card abroad. If When you're a tourist using your credit card abroad, you're not a profit maximizer. Otherwise you wouldn't be paying the 3% fee you have to pay it to your credit card company. And so, when if you differentiate between those guys and the pros, and with pros I, I, I consider the folks in the options market for example, we think, and we've written the white paper about it, that there is an information advantage that that the that the option writers have. They if you want to buy insurance against a decline, you go to the options rider. And so you can see how much they charge for insurance, just like you can look at the options market in other spaces as well. And one of the things you can do, for example, is you can see how fear is moving around the world when there's a shock, and you can devise actually a strategy on that. So there are some unique opportunities on that that, that you use risk sentiment indicators on that. Um, and one of the things we have done, for example, is we have said, just like in any other space, not the the same strategy doesn't work all the time. And so one of the things we found out in the currency space, and I think it applies to other spaces as well, is that depending on the sort of environment you're in, different types of strategies work. And so to give an example, in a calm environment, your traditional investment allocation would work. In the currency space, that would be hey, based on a macro analysis, qualitative analysis, you can make money. Um, And uh, if you dissect the world into how volatile it is on the one axis, and how much how fragile the world is how how highly correlated asset prices are on the other axis the the, the car market kind of would be at, at the bottom at the at the at the lower corner at the other end of the extreme you have a panicked environment high volatility correlation to move to one everything is moving to one well in that sort of environment the sort of um, risk sentiment based strategy works well and so you can you can devise your strategy come integrating qualitative and quantitative approaches in various ways and. Uh, and in the meantime, you can listen to FMC speeches and either get gray hair and have a good laugh because they're saying things that they might not be able to implement. You know,
0: for someone who looks through the lens of currencies today, what what are some of the more attractive ones that you think are, are interesting from a long perspective and, and also on the on the short side? Is there any that particularly stand out?
1: Well, they're all ugly, ugly ducklings, right? I mean, um, and, the, and what, what we're getting away from, luckily, is this... this what we've had for too long, what everybody in the dog wants to talk down the currency, and so we're getting a little bit away from that. And so let me just uh, kind of address the big elephant in the room here. Uh, let's talk about the dollar versus the euro, and uh, the dollar index was rising four years in a row. If you look at, uh, we're not technicians, but if you look at standard deviations, we were more than two standard deviations over the long-term moving average. Now, that gives you a clue that maybe, maybe the dollar rally has gone too far. And uh, sure enough, at the end of last year, after Trump was elected, the dollar jumped even higher. And uh, people said, yep, the dollar is going to go through the roof. You're going to get this board adjustment tax. The dollar is going to go up, up to 25 percent. And guess what? The dollar is weaker year to date. And a big part of that is it's one is. Everything is in the context of value, and the dollar was just too expensive. Uh, the, the second one is uh, we talk about this FOMC meeting. We talk about how the Fed is going to sell off the balance sheet. Well, the Fed not only doesn't know where it's going to go, they are fully aware that they probably have to engage in QE again in the next downturn. We are pricing in as we speak that there's going to be another, let me just put on my glasses here, um, we're gonna put in another half rate hike for this year and one rate hike for next year. And you're telling me that this is an economy that is supposedly running at at a good steam. I happen to think we are tightening into a a, uh, slowing economy, which means we might be closer to the peak of the rate cycle in the US. Now go to Europe, where the ECB is continuing to buy 60 billion euros a month worth of securities, they've committed to that until December, in September, we'll probably get an update as, as to how much we're going to get. Well, guess what? Um, and just uh, uh, just recently, Draghi, head of the ECB, said they're not going to lower interest rates any further. Draghi has said the risk of deflation is gone. Um, and gave a bunch of positive things. The only thing you said, hey, we need to continue to print the money because we are not at 2% yet. But to me, that suggests at the ECB, we're at the bottom of the interest rate cycle, and the Fed, we're closer to the top. And to me, that means the euro is probably going to get stronger. And so everybody loves to hate the euro, and I'm not suggesting that everything is good in the eurozone. even if I just said something positive about France. Indeed, I'm turning more negative on Germany, partially because So many good things are there in Germany that I think that things can get worse there. But it's a, to me, this notion that the dollar just has to go up because this is Things are generally better in, in the U.S. No, it's always in the context of valuation. And so on the biggest elephant out there, I, I predict that the year is going to be substantially stronger in a year from now.
0: For the most the individual practitioners out there, even the professional advisors, how should they implement currencies in their investment program? Should it be something where you say, look, just wash your hands of it. You don't need to hedge or think about currencies or say, no, 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 actually, they need to take a tactical approach or even consider currency strategies as a separate asset class. What's, what's the kind of takeaway for most people? Do you have a
1: strong opinion there? Well, everybody has currency risk. You just have to choose whether you want manage it or not. If you're dollar-based investors only invest in dollar-based assets, you have dollar currency risk. Um, you're fooling yourself if you think you don't have currency risk. If you take the price of gold, it, uh, since the early 1970s ni- or so, it had an annual appreciation, I think, of almost 8% a year. The gold hasn't changed, but maybe the dollar has gotten weaker, and and so it's you got to manage the currency risk somehow, and there are different ways of doing it. For a while, um, these uh, currency hedged emerging market products uh, or, or international markets were uh, buying the uh, buying the Japanese market and hedging the currency risk was pro- was was very popular. Well, we don't do what's popular; we try to do what's right, and and so you got to be. Attentive of what risks you want to take on and which ones you you want to manage. When I tell you that I think France is going to outperform the U.S., I think it is in combination with the currency risk. Meaning you don't have to hedge out your currency risk if you were to play that. And again, I'm not giving specific investment advice here. Uh, at the same time, the power of using currencies on their own is that you can generate returns that are uncorrelated So that the two ways you can obviously buy the equities or fixed income instruments. That's one way. You can buy money market type of instruments, uh, so short-term cash instruments abroad, meaning you just spread your cash risk abroad, that was very popular until about four years ago, uh, where you have the international exposure while minimizing your equity and interest rate risk. I happen to think that may be very prudent right now, but people haven't embraced it because people are very reluctant to embrace a, a declining dollar. The other way to do it is to fully embrace currencies to go a long, to do a long-short strategy. Say you go long the Swiss franc and short the euro or vice versa. You can't guarantee that you make money with that, but the returns you generate are almost certainly going to be uncorrelated with anything else in one's portfolio. And that's where we go back to kind of what I said earlier. Equity prices are expensive. How do you diversify from expensive equities? And historically, the way you do it is you go to fixed income but fixed income doesn't yield anything. So people go to high yield. Well, they don't call it that, but just about anything that yields anything is high yield. And that also means you're not getting the diversification you want. And so what do you diversify to? I mentioned gold earlier, and we can talk about gold. Gold is, in my view, the easiest diversifier. It's not always the best diversifier, but it's the easiest diversifier. But beyond that, it gets complicated. So you can do long short equities, we discussed that we can do long short currencies. And so my view is that as an investor, Rather than saying, hey, you should look at this this product or touting my own products um, that we might have, you really have to have a fresh look at your portfolio in the current environment. Have you been taking chips off the table? If so, have you done something prudent and correlated with it? And I'm almost certain that the majority of your listeners has not done that. And the reason I allege that is because if you have any professional manager assets, right away, unless you embrace alternatives as a huge portion of your portfolio, odds are that you have been lagging the S&P 500 on the upside and when the market has had corrections, the few we've had, you've still lost money for your clients. And and that means that those advisors, and we know a bunch of them, have lost investors because there's somebody else in there that says, hey, have have you just been buying securities and look at my track record since the spring of 2009, hey, it cannot possibly go wrong. Those folks who are prudent have been losing assets. And so it takes somebody who really, it, it takes more of an endowment model to their investment portfolio and saying, hey, I'm allocating actually a very small portion of my portfolio to equities. And then the entire rest of it, I try to do something that has a low correlation. And then we can think about, well, what is part of that? And then currency, we think, um is an amazing opportunity that people should consider but it doesn't have to be currencies. It, it should be something that by design is not correlated and by all means please choose something that's not hip right now because otherwise you're going to be try chasing the MLPs, just the master limited partnerships just at the worst time or, or the currency hedge Japanese markets at the worst time. Um, so you've got to take a long-term approach to markets um, which means you've got to take chips off the table away from the things that are working to things that might not have been working as long as, of course, the investment process is, is, is good and whatever people might be doing.
0: Okay, let's. Um, you mentioned two things I wanted to touch on there. So first, we'll come back to gold in a minute. But since you mentioned the the endowment model, you, you had a good piece titled Best Investment Practices, um, which we'll put a link to on, on the show notes. But you kind of outlined the endowment model, which historically is a globally diversified model. Um, it has exposure to real assets and it has a lot exposed to alternatives and so in, in your kind of allocation you talked, they have roughly about a third in these sort of hedge type of strategies and talk a little bit about this do you think this is an appropriate allocation for investors and if so like what what fits into that category if you were to say you know these these hedge type of alternatives what what should, where should investors look where's kind of the the best diversifiers the most opportunity
1: Well, obviously, sorry for mentioning it so many times, uh, we can't give a specific investment advice on anybody's allocation, but I would encourage anybody to get away from the notion that the S&P is where everybody has to be. Now, clearly, it's a difficult discussion to be had because the S&P goes up and up and up and up. Uh, The problem is, of course, what can go up can go down. And uh, but when things have gone up for so many years and you can buy the dips and everything goes up whenever that happens, you think, oh my God, I just have to be there. And let me just give the example here of 2008. Some people are telling folks at the end of 2008, you should double down and buy the dip. And I said that might be completely irresponsible. Now, clearly, it might have been a good time to do that. But the reason I say that is that I have absolutely no problem if somebody on the way up has taken chips off the table and then has money to invest when things are bad. But what happens in practice is that you you tend to pile in into what's working. You go up all the way. You're overexposed to risk assets. Then the market crashes. You lose half of your net worth. You cannot tell me that you should increase the riskiness of your portfolio when you've just lost half of your assets um, and so that happens unfortunately in practice now if you're somebody that diligently takes chips off the table and tell people hey think up yeah, I'm increasing my cash bucket and by the way holding cash is not a bad investment choice and then if the market comes down I put a little bit more to work and as it comes down more that that's fine but if you if you say all right Maybe central banks are going to distort asset prices for, for much longer because ultimately this is not a sustainable system. And so then you got to think about, well, how am I going to navigate this? And it is not about kind of chasing returns. It is about risk management. And so what are the sort of risks I can take and how can I generate different revenue streams? And so, should I be investing in real estate where I get some rental income? Obviously, considering that maybe real estate prices are quite expensive, right? Can I can I do something? Should I be putting money into a hedge fund um, uh, if if one is an accredited investor? Well, just for the sake of it, probably not. But if one believes that there is an investment process that somebody has that makes sense and is able to generate returns differently without taking excessive risk and has good risk management, by all means, why not spread your eggs? And so for kind of for 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 the more common investor, that means much lower allocation to equities. And then on the fixed income side, yes, sacrifice return. And, and then let's look at some of these alternatives. And of course I, I can't embrace the different types of alternatives that are here. They all have their sort of, their, their special sort of risk. But the, the challenge here is you've got to do your homework on the investment process much more so than on the historical return. And the reason I say that is that um, if you, a lot of the, 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 the strategies that are actively managed have had problems when risk premiums are compressed. That means the dispersion of risk is is compressed. And that means active management has a difficult time of navigating. But if we're now going to an era where where the central bank is selling off its balance sheet, that means fear might be coming back to the market. The risk premium is going to be rising. That means active management is going to be profitable again. And so I would not hesitate to allocate to active managers in that sort of environment. Now in practice I can tell you what's going to happen. Um, People are going to continue to buy the dips. They're going to be extremely reluctant to do anything. And then let the market really have some carnage. At the end of that carnage people will start looking at active managers again. I think the time to evaluate active managers no matter who it is, is now. And it's not going to be easy because the returns are going to be lackluster. Um, and so you really have to kind of shake it and, and see um, whether these guys, uh, whoever you evaluate, is um, has a decent investment process.
0: We actually just mentioned on the last podcast, we were talking about $17 million FinTech ideas. And we put in Princey's terrible because – um, I was I was admitting that some were probably awful, but one of the ideas I'd love to see is um, a research boutique or a handful of people writing a little more about public liquid alternative funds, whether it be mutual funds or ETFs, to really give a lot of the investors out there a deep dive into the products and structures and everything else, because it is a challenge to to keep up with all the products and managers and what's going on. So, listeners, if you're listening, that's a, that seems like a good business idea. Axel, I want to talk on uh, touch on a couple more things. Before we have to wind down, let's get back to gold. So, uh, you know, Axel's got had had launched a successful gold ETF um, that uh, we probably can't talk much about, but it's one of the more unique funds out there and that you can actually take physical delivery uh which is really cool but but why don't you talk to us a little bit about gold you know is it do you see it as a strategic part of it should be a strategic part of everyone's portfolio is there a way you can value it is there uh, are you particularly bullish or bearish or nothingness on it right now give us give us your kind of
1: broad broad overview yeah, so earlier I, I indicated gold may be the easiest diversifier. And the reason I say that, there are kind of two criteria you want to have when you diversify, add something to your portfolio or consider replacing something. You want to have a positive return expectation and you want to have a low correlation. And the correlation part is, is reasonably straightforward. In the long run, the if you take the monthly returns of, of gold, the correlation to the S&P since 1970 is just about zero. Um, it's very low if you take daily correlation and whatnot. Um, but the price of gold on a daily basis, there may be periods. I indicated earlier correlations are morphing. Sometimes it moves with risk acid, sometimes against it. And so you don't always get diversification, and it can be caught up in a mania. Um, and so it's, a, it's an okay diversifier. I like it a lot. But if you want to have kind of the, the, the by design diversify, you've got to get to more complex strategies like a long short strategy of, of any sort. On the return side, people look at the historic returns of gold and say, oh yeah, that's good. But what about tomorrow? How can this thing that is just a brick and non-productive asset have a positive return? And of course, and then if you showed it as a good positive return over a, a longer period, and say, yeah, that's on indication it might be overvalued. Well, my take on it is, is, is more that the, the biggest competitive rule is, is cash that pays a real rate of return. And so if you think that you're going to get compensated holding cash and be able to preserve the real purchasing power of your cash, and then cash is going to win and, and gold is going to decline. And, of course, not on a daily basis, maybe, but that's kind of the medium-term an outlook. And if I look at, I mentioned earlier, that much of the developed world, I happen to think we have a problem with entitlements. We have made too many promises and uh, we cannot pay them back. And so unless we do a few different things, and in the U.S., I happen to think we are going to address those sort of challenges by debasing the purchasing power of the dollar. I do not see how in a decade from now we can have positive real interest rates. And so from that point of view, I don't really care so much about what rates are going to be today or tomorrow. I just see the path. I see that the path that the Fed is proposing is not credible. I, at least they got the appearance of a path right now, but I think they have to do a U-turn. Um, and so I don't think real interest rates can move substantially higher. So from that point of view, I think, yep, gold. From a diversification point of view, might work. And then from a return point of view, might work as well. If you put it in the context of other asset prices, if you believe that, quote, unquote, almost everything is expensive, well, where do you go? And again, gold is just the easiest answer because it's one of those things. From my point of view, it's not particularly over or undervalued right now. But if we were to have a crash in the markets, I happen to think that gold might shine. Uh, quite a bit. So if you take it from, take it from a cash flow point of view or discounted cash flow point of view, sure, gold doesn't have cash flow. But if you go back to this model of compressed risk premium, well compressed risk premia uh, means asset prices are higher, if risk premium are going to rise, meaning if fear is coming back into the market, asset prices in general of equity prices are going to, to come down. And something like gold that doesn't have a cash flow isn't as affected by that. And so that's why gold in relation um, to, to equities is going to shine, pardon the pun here, if risk assets go down. And so, uh, as you might have gathered from my talk, I happen to be negative on equities. I, it's also, by the way, a negative carry holding because there's a cost of holding gold. It's much less negative than than many others such as buying volatility or whatever else you might might come up with. And so from that point of view, gold again is, is the easy diversifier. And we see that if we look at the flows in the market, increasingly investors are embracing gold as a diversifier because they are spooked about the devaluations in the markets, but They are too much of a chicken to sell the equity, so they'd rather add some gold to it. And so from that point of view, yes, I own gold, and I encourage people to look at it. And uh, I think as part of a broadly diversified portfolio, um, it is is very worthwhile to, to, to consider it as a diversifier.
0: Yeah, we we agree. I mean, there's a great quote from Ray Dalio who runs the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater, that says something on, on the lines of if you don't own gold, you need you know neither history nor economics. And he recommends a pretty good sized chunk of gold for uh, strategic allocation. And I wonder though, you know, w- we we tend to talk to a lot of younger investors as well. You know, at least over the past few years, you've started to see a exploding interest in this year as well in in some of these cryptocurrencies is this something you pay any attention to at all or like me do you see it as somewhat of a, a pleasant distraction
1: well I have to pay attention to it because I keep getting asked about it and keep getting phone calls about it I, I have a computer science degree I in the 80s a Polish student explained to me public key cryptography I'm um, I was born in Germany, so I, I was a foreigner as well, and, uh, and so I've kept a strong interest in all things uh, encryption throughout my life, and I've been approached by venture capitalists, lawyers, others. I love the decentralized ledger technology, and I sincerely hope that um, it's going to get substantially more traction in it. That said, I can't wrap my head around... Well, I can wrap my head around it, but I'm not going to buy bitcoins myself partially because I think it's in the bubble and mostly because I think that bitcoins are mostly a delayed debit card that fluctuates greatly in value Uh, and sure now half of the audience is probably going to hate me but there is a both a fascinating and an extremely valuable technology behind it the question is where's the value proposition and uh, we've had internal discussions in in the office whether we should buy Bitcoin uh, not in our public products but to me there has to be some sort of valuation framework, and in, in and the fact simply that the price has gone up is not a sufficient condition to me to to play the mania. That's not a, that doesn't mean you can't do that, right? If you if you have an investment process that is very price based, and you think you can be smarter than the market and get out at the top, and when before this bubble blows, by all means. But there is a, a lot of the Bitcoin trading is happening in China. And there's a reason for that, is A, because they don't have many other choices, and B, it's for them it's an avenue to potentially get money out of the country. It's a huge pity for me that the, the Bitcoin ETF wasn't approved in the U.S., and the reason why that's a pity is... Because it solves a a huge problem that Bitcoin has. It's anything that's popular will be regulated, and by having a trade on exchange, you're solving the anti-money laundering issue. And the second one is that an exchange-traded Bitcoin would have created a derivatives market, which is, in my view, extremely helpful. So I wish the technology the best of luck. I think it's going to have a future. I just happen to think that the Bitcoins themselves are not something that, that I would want to have in my portfolio
0: yeah it kind of echoes our sentiments as well um we it's been a, a pleasant distraction for us and i don't know a single person who's ever transacted in bitcoin at least in in my um kind of friends and family circle i i know i know people around the world that that are involved in the business but um, i do i do i do <laughs> <laughs> but, but the but the funny i mean the funny thing to me is that it's like it, it uh, cash and Credit cards and Apple Pay is is in Venmo and and, uh, PayPal is perfectly, like it fulfills all my needs and earns a bank
1: interest and is involved. Anyway, like you said. Let me make one more comment about that, though. Um, One of the the arguments for a lot of the fintech movement and and Bitcoin is that it's so much cheaper to transact than in the banking system. We deal in a currency space. We can move millions, tens of millions at absolutely minimal cost. There's absolutely no reason that it should cost a retail person a fortune to transfer money abroad, other than that regulators have made it so complicated and expensive, and that banks are such huge bureaucracies that it's just very difficult for them to move. And so what I see here is more that fintech and including bitcoin is more about shaking up this industry uh, many of the ba- the banks have their lunch eaten here because they're more nimble organizations there now what's going to happen is that some fintech players will be bought by the banks and will just be integrated but there's also a threat to the business model to big banks that are ultimately just technology providers that provide a, a financial service um, and so at the same time if bitcoin or any other related technology is going to get extremely popular Guess what? The regulators will pile in and also going to make it very expensive. And, and, and so transaction costs are again going to go up in that space. And so in, in many ways, it's good to shake up the industry, but don't think for a moment that you're going to have your, or potcoin was now on the, in, the, in the news with uh, our visitor to North Korea. Had his shirt here had, the, had a big potcoin thing. Don't think you're going to be outside the law, because the regulators will find a way to come and get you. And so, and and obviously, we work here in a a regulated business, um, and so we have to respect that. And it's all the more reason why uh, finding an interface to to work with the established norms as much as some of the community hates that, it's going to be ultimately necessary to make it successful. We'll
0: just stick to laundering money with cabbage patch kids and, and baseball cards and, <laughs> exactly. and other, other prior speculations. Axel, we're going to wind down here. We've got a couple questions um, we, we usually ask anyone. If... You wanted to give like one piece of investing advice for listeners right now, in particular, you know, looking back since you published your book and kind of what's changed in the world, and, and kind of thinking about this whole episode. Kind of what what one takeaway would you like investors to to take away
1: from this episode? The other day, my answer was, go to the gym, stay healthy so you can can, can get another revenue source as you age. And I, I was actually quite serious about that. I believe that investors should look at their portfolio much more from a risk point of view than a return point of view. Stress this portfolio. Um, when they hear stories from conspiracy theorists or negative folks, we I'm not always negative on the market, but tend to be. Embrace that, not to say necessarily the market is going to do exactly what I predict or I fear it might do, but stress test your portfolio into that scenario, because we've got such a survival bias in this industry that, that's the buy, 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 buy the dip mentality, and that's going to be wrong at some point. And if that is the case, can you afford the risk? Like any investment, look at it from the point of view, can you afford the risk of having this investment go wrong? If you have to chase an investment because you need to make that return, that's the wrong investment.
0: Yeah, we 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 often say, particularly to wealthy individuals, um, quote is is an old Bernstein quote that says, "Look, you've already won the game." And you know, once particularly if you have some wealth, the the whole goal is first to you know do no harm. And a a lot of people, a lot of mistakes we see is certainly taking on a lot more risk or putting um, their assets exposed to. Uh, big drawdowns than they don't necessarily need or even want. Axel, if you can think back over your career over the past few decades, is there any one particular investment or trade that's been the most memorable one in your career? Now, this can be positive, it can be negative, it can be a money loser, anything. But kind of when I ask that question, is there anything just pops in your head um, that has been kind of the most memorable investment or trade? Um, well,
1: what would you like me to brag about? I'm um, buying Apple stock when Steve Jobs came back to the company. That's kind of the most memorable one. And I had done that when Louis Gerstner came back to IBM, for those who remember Louis Gerstner. I then sold all my equities, including Apple stocks, and Apple obviously I sold too early in 2007 because I was scared. Um, but I'm going to not use these words since you might have children listen to this program. Uh, so I then sold all my equities in 2007, and I, that was a very nice, nice ride. But so part of the reason is because I followed Steve Jobs all his life, and I bought one of his computers that he gener- created while he was not at Apple. Um, and so I knew the technology was coming over, and I said, hey, this is good at any. And just to kind of close that loop, I had done IBM, I'd done Apple, and I said, well, why, the- why don't I do it with Yahoo as well? And uh, just to be safe, I said, if it works out, I'll have bragging rights. But just in case it doesn't work out, I'll do it in my wife's retirement account. <laughs> and uh, it turns out, even if she hasn't turned out uh, around the country, company. It, it wasn't such a bad trade after all, after she came back to Yahoo. Well, Axel, this
0: has been a blast. Um, where can listeners best follow you, your work, your publications, everything else?
1: Well, as I indicated earlier, following me on Twitter is something, and not just me, anybody that you find that you like. Uh, find a good article, look up who the author is, follow them on Twitter. My handle is my name, Axel Merck, so please follow me on Twitter. We do have a newsletter on our website. Um, a, a free one, MerckInvestments.com, and look around there. What else we do? If uh, we, we got some products, and then if you are a family office or institution, we'll be glad to stress test your portfolio. But um, following me on Twitter is, is, is really a, an excellent start if you want to be in touch. Be aware if there is an ECB or Fed meeting, I'll tweet a lot, and otherwise I don't tweet much. But um, I'll, I'll, that's the best way to get really an instantaneous interpretation of what's happening in the markets.
0: Well, great. Look, Axel, it's been a big pleasure. We wish you the best of luck in your marathon the summer and thanks for coming on today all right was a pleasure listeners thanks for taking the time to listen we always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at the mebfabershow.com as a reminder you can always find the show notes uh we'll post links to some axel's papers and other charts we mentioned and other episodes at mebfabershow.com forward slash podcasts can always subscribe to the show on iTunes. Actually, now it's called Apple Podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.